everybody. I'm Adam Hergenrother. This is Business Meets Spirituality. We believe in personal growth, conscious growth, inner growth through business success. That means that we are going to be active in our daily lives instead of living uh, in a cave. Uh, today, which I know you're going to be super excited for, we have the author of No Self, No Problem, which is a Chris Niebauer, which is a book that I've read about four times the last couple of weeks and referred it out. Chris and I jump into the conversation about what uh, is the kind of interplay between consciousness and neuroscience, how, that's, how that field is evolving and really what is money and how material things interact there and how not to get attached to those things. But we just have a wonderful conversation and I know that you're going to look forward to uh, listening to our interaction. Hey, Chris, so today I would love to kind of jump in and start off with um, how you came about for our audience, uh, how you came about to really bring consciousness into neuroscience and in really kind of answering that question, one, one thing after reading your, your book about four times and, and getting it out there, no self, no problem, I really want to understand why, uh, why you, there's a lot of neuroscientists that are out there that had, you know, parents kind of pass away. Um, but I'm curious as to what oriented your life to kind of go down this path. It, it really all started off with, uh, with the death of my father and just kind of throwing me into a really intense version of, of neurosis. I was a neurotic, quivering mess that was just, and the interesting thing about being so neurotic was it seemed like the more I tried to fix it, the worse my neurosis got. And so I thought, well, I'll go off and get a PhD in neuroscience. It seemed, you know, kind of makes sense. It, it, it's maybe there's some kind of trick to the brain. Like there's something I can fix. And, and, and there's a lot of interesting things about neuroscience that make it, I mean, it's not, that's a pretty reasonable path. I mean, neuroscience really holds out this kind of possibility. We know about neurotransmitters, and we know that there are all kinds of things associated with anxiety. We know all kinds of brain um, modules that contribute to anxiety. So it, it was a reasonable path, but I felt it just fell short. It just, it, it, I was in the middle of grad school, and it just, it was getting me a, a good way there. But what I found is when I turned to Eastern philosophy, it, 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 all the missing pieces just fell right into place. It was just like, it, it, it seemed like a perfect match. It's, it, the two seemed to complement each other in ways that I think we're finding in the literature right now. I mean, it, it's not just one or two people who are making this connection. It's, it's almost a genre of people who are saying, look, you take neuroscience, it's, it's a great way to give people kind of the basics. You complement that with Eastern philosophy and... And, and it's, it's just a great combination and it's going to, and that's the, it's going to put things together in a way that you don't need a PhD to understand. Yeah. And it's going to be really practical. Were you already on the field in neuroscience before your dad passed the conning that kind of led to all the neurosis or did the neurosis happen? And then you went into the field of neuroscience. The, my, the neurosis really happened in my twenties and I sort of struggled through undergrad um, in psychology, hoping again that psychology would reveal some kind of you know secret. We're all looking for this kind of secret yeah. that key, you know. Yeah. And um, and so yeah, that came first. And, it, and it, at the time, I thought you know we we wonder like is this some kind of punishment? Mm -hmm. You know why this suffering? And when I look back on it, I wouldn't have trade. I wouldn't trade it for anything. It, it was an absolute gift that yeah. led me to places that I would have never imagined I would have ended up being with that. I, I couldn't imagine being where I'm at right now. If, if I wasn't a neurotic mess in my twenties. Yeah. I mean, life is a perfectly designed system. It doesn't always unfold the way we want it to in our, in our minds, but it's a perfectly designed sure. system for our growth. When you went back and you said, I, I want to go fix it. What were you trying to fix? Were you trying to fix the suffering? Were you trying to fix the, the neurosis? What, in speci what specifically were you trying to fix? I, the, the experience of anxiety was something that was just so unappealing to me. I just, I felt that there had to be some way to like a not something I could just turn down. Even if I couldn't turn it off, yeah. just take it from 11 down to like maybe five <laughs> yeah. and something that was bearable, yeah. something that was livable. Yeah. I love that. Well, for um, people who don't know everything about your book, um, why don't you give a little brief intro into it in terms of really kind of dis discussing the left brain and the right brain? I know it's a, it's a long book and we can't cover all of that today, um, but I'd love to jump in and kind of give a brief overview of kind of what your, um, your neuroscience background has kind of informed you in the left brain to right brain, and hopefully people can kind of make that connection as they're on their path um, for inner growth. I think that one of the... Uh, 
points in my in, in my education that's, that stands out to this day was learning about the left brain and the left brain interpreter, the work by Gazaniga, the stuff that got Roger Sperry a Nobel Prize with the split brain patients. But it was really, it was Gazaniga's work when he looked at the left brain in isolation and the capacity for the left brain to make up stories. Yeah, That, that, that hit me so hard. I felt like, why isn't this like, why this should be on the cover of every magazine and everyone should be talking about yeah. it. It's true. <laughs> and, yeah. and, it, and it just, and I, and I, then I started when I shifted over to becoming a professor and I was lecturing about it, I would, you know, build it up as a good story. Like, look, I'm going to, the stuff I'm going to tell you now is life changing. <laughs> when I tell you the capacity of our left brain to make up stories, to confabulate, and then to absolutely believe it with complete certitude, no questioning, I just, I, I build that lecture up and I expect people, and every so often it's true, one or two students will come up to me and they'll be like, that blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> but the vast majority just kind of like, you know, I they'll just kind of write things down. Like the left brain makes things up. The left brain makes up the story of who we think we are. I'm nothing more than a story created by my left brain. And they're just writing it out. And I'm like, okay, you know, it, we're, so it's, a, it's an interesting message because it should be something that shakes the very foundation of who we are as a human being, but we're, maybe we're not ready for it. You know, maybe, maybe some of us are ready for it. Uh, some like for, for me, I was ready for it because it was that left brain story that was causing me suffering. Yeah. So if the left brain story is dragging you down, if it's causing depression, if it's, if it's interfering with, if it's getting in the way of you succeeding to where you want to be, then it's a story you want to hear. Yeah. How would you, how would you classify what the left brain does versus the right brain? So if you could, if you could kind of explain exactly how the left brain functions and the right brain functions. It, it's a great question. It's probably the most popular question I get. And I'm always working with it. I, I'm always working to answer it in different ways because it's, it's, it's such an important question to get a message across to people that they can apply. I, I, as an academic, I don't, I'm not looking for an academic. I used to give very academic answers to this question, but the way I look at it is we're really and everyone can relate to this. We, we know that we have two worlds that we live in. There's kind of a practical world. We get things done. We have a scheduling book. And, you know, some people do. I don't. <laughs> but some people are supposed to. And, you know, we've got dates and we have projects we have to complete and, and, and planning and, and, um, and strategy and puzzles to solve. And that is the world of the left brain. The world of the left brain uses language. It uses strategy. It uses symbols to manipulate the world in a way that serves this idea of the ego. And there's, and that's a really good tool. I'm not, sometimes when people read the book, they think I'm too, I'm, I'm coming too hard. I come down too hard on this idea of a self. Like I just want to get rid of the self and just, you know, annihilate it from our existence. And that's not true. Um, what I want to show is that it's just a tool. Yeah. You can use it and it can actually, once you recognize it for what it really is, it can actually benefit your life in ways that you couldn't even comprehend before. The right brain is not concerned with the future. It's not concerned with what happened in the past. The right brain is far more in the present moment. The right brain isn't concerned with solving problems. It's concerned with the immediate experience of what's happening right now. Um, what we see happening with the mindfulness movement, uh, what we see not just with mindfulness, but we see it with yoga, all these things that have suddenly popped up in our culture that are really popular. I mean, they're, they're, you can take classes in Qigong at university now. And so what do all these things have in common? The thing about right hemisphere awareness, and this underlies all the different forms that it can take, is their, their consciousness without thinking, consciousness without planning, consciousness without strategy. You're literally in the moment doing exactly what you're doing for no other future purpose other than what you're experiencing at that moment. Yeah. And in your, well, thank you for that. In the, in the book, you really 
um, one of the things I loved uh, that you talked about is the studies that had on animals with the arousal of excitement based on, you kind of gave the example of a magnetic field is consciousness isn't necessarily centered inside the brain. It is, it's all around us. And if you cut up a magnet then obviously you could, you could experience the, the magnetic wave outside of the actual magnet itself. And so you give this, this kind of this example of the dogs. Can you walk us through that? Cause I thought that was a, a great way of kind of describing the right brain. So that's Rupert Sheldrake's work. An interesting thing about his work is, um, and I've kind of gotten to know Rupert a little bit over the last few years, and he's such a careful scientist. And, and the work that he does is so meticulous, but the conclusions that he comes to are not very comfortable for people who are in a left brain kind of mode of existence. Mm. Because what it's suggesting is that there's all like, so we have this left brain thinking mind. And again, it's a great puzzle solver and it creates the idea of the self and it gets, it really does get things done in, in a very practical way, but it also has an arrogance to it. It believes that it's the beginning and the end. It's, it's like that person who shows up at a party and maybe the party was going on for hours before it got there. But you know, this person thinks the party started right when it got yeah. there. You know? <laughs> That's the way the left brain is like nothing. When I, you know, the light doesn't go on until I walk into a room kind of thing. And, um, and so it doesn't like this kind of research. What this research is suggesting is that there's a certain mode of awareness, and that's what the, the research with animals is showing, that there's a mode of awareness that's beyond our thinking mind. It's, it, it perceives and connects to something far greater than our egos are aware of. Yeah, I love that. Um, so when you when it, when it connects to something that's above our ego, if you will, outside of our ego, what is it connecting to in your opinion? Now, I, I like that. That's a great question. And I always like to put it that that question cannot be exactly put into words. Yeah. And so right now, this is the great tool of the thinking mind. It's allowing us to communicate right now. We're using language. We're using a shared system of symbols so we can uh, make a connection and, and converse. When we talk about who we really are beyond the ego and we talk about this consciousness, um, whatever it is, it transcends the thinking mind. It transcends language and whatever it is, it's, it's, it's not the kind of thing that we're, I believe we'll ever be able to easily put into words. Yeah. Is that because it really in the left brain is more like subject object relationship, right? It needs a subject, needs an object for it to kind of comprehend it. And whereas if consciousness, divine energy, whatever you want to refer to it as God is more of uh, you know, subject, subject relationship. So it's really, it's hard for it to explain it because it is it right. It's yeah. capable of witnessing itself. And you kind of think of it as like, you know, you ask somebody what an orange tastes like if somebody has never tasted an orange. Right. And you can't really describe, I mean, how do people describe that? Or what does love taste like or feel like, yeah. right. Yeah, or it's like, what, is it, what color is it? Right. And you're like, nobody, when you ask people those questions, they stop and they go, well, they can't really answer with words because there isn't you, if you try to do that, I think Ram Dass said that a lot too, right. It's just the, the illusion of spiritual practice is an illusion in itself too. Right. Versus actually knowing once you actually taste the orange and you're like, well, I know what it tastes like. Mm -hmm. We run, we run a course and I'd be curious if you've seen the same thing where, where people get into a deep meditation and they come out of that and they say, wow, it was really deep. And I just, you should pause for a second. You say, well, who was deep, right? Who was deep? And they go, well, I was, and I go, well, how do you know you were deep? And you just, I was, I was deep. And it's like, you can't explain that. You can only know that. Right. And that's what I think you're kind of referring to. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, and the kind of paradox that so many, so many of us live with is that um, the left brain is so convinced that if you can't put it into words, it is me, it's absolutely meaningless. And there's a whole movement called logical positivism about a hundred years ago in science where it just convinced people, like if you cannot articulate it precisely, it is meaningless. And we kind of picked up on that as a culture. We thought for a long time, like if you can't express it, it's, it's, it's useless. It's me. It has no function. And the thing about right brain awareness is, is that it, it, it's, it's, it, it may be the very purpose, the very meaning of our existence. And so sometimes people walk away, they just live their lives and they feel very empty. They feel very meaningless. You know, what am I doing here? Well, the problem is they're looking for meaning in all the wrong places. They're looking for meaning in a way that they can put into words. Yeah. Like it's some kind of test. Like, can I put in a paragraph, the meaning of my life, the meaning of our lives are not, it's not something that you can put into words. And there's the paradox. 
Yeah, it's almost like people live their life as a means to an end in everything they're doing. I just got to get through this day, got to get to the bathroom, got to get through this this interview, got to get to this next contract, yeah. got to this next thing. And you kind of wake up one day and realize like, what am I doing, right? I'm just going to be playing this linear progression game my entire life instead of actually just being the means. Instead of having it be a means to an end, just being the means gives you that direct experience of life so you can actually live life instead of live the mind, right? And, and that's the powerful thing that people are getting when they start practicing mindfulness. And it, 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 they may not be mindful all day. And I don't think you have to. I, I, I think the research is showing it really only takes, it, 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 they're not really sure exactly how little it takes, but it's surprising how little it may take. Yeah. Um, I mean, you might even get it down to just a, an occasional conscious, mindful breath every, you know, once in a while through your day to remind, to kind of recenter your awareness to meaning. And then you end up getting a lot more done. And by, by the end of the day, anyway, that's the funny thing about it. It is, isn't it? And like, you can even set up cues. Like every time I walk through a door, I'm, uh, you kind of reminds myself to take a deep breath and just bring yourself back to a center position of that knowing every time, you know, every time I pull in the office, before I get out of my office, I kind of remind myself I'm here to contribute, not get right. Just kind of these you, people, the people are listening can set certain cues up anywhere in their, in their life to just give them that sacred pause the Dalai Lama refers to of just a moment of just reflecting on who you are. And then when you do that, when your heartbeat matches nature's heartbeat, you kind of, there's an alignment that kind of of life that flows um, uh, together, which is, which is really what it's about. Right. Yeah. That's a nice way to put it. And, and that's what we can do. We can get close with words and we use phrases like frequency and, and things that capture it pretty close. And, and that's the best that we can do. And then if I've had that experience, I know what you're talking about. And, and, and that's, you know, and that's the way people connect with it. And, and it, it doesn't take that much, you know, a person may take a mindfulness class. Like I teach a mindfulness course. And for some, most of the students, it's the first time they've ever even, they, their entire existence is centered around the past or some potential future that they think might happen. And when I start bringing them into the present moment, it's like a revolution. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. The, the present moment has been there the whole time. Yeah. It's like you realize like the whole time that you reach down in through a brook to kind of release the dam and your left hand has been holding it down the whole time. <laughs> when you yeah. finally realize that it just kind of opens it up, you've been the one holding it back, right? It's, it's, it, yeah. You know, we get in our own way. Yeah. And, and, and some of that's culture, you know, like in the book, I talk about how this yeah. left brain interpreter we've been in, we've been encouraging it since we were two, we, we, we create a sense of, you know, a seriousness with the self since we were young. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, some of it's culture. Um, but yeah, you know, in the end we end up being our own worst enemy with this stuff. And, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't take very much, you know, and sometimes people are hesitant to get into a mindfulness class because they, they have these images like, Oh, you know, maybe something from almost the sixties where, what are you going to want me to sell everything and just kind of live on a mountaintop or something. <laughs> and it's really nothing like that at all. It's, it's, it's amazingly simple. It takes very little time. And, uh, and that's the cool thing about that state of mindfulness. When, when you get into it, it has no time. It, it's literally a timeless state. And so you say, well, how much, how much time do I have to spend in the timeless state? And you start realizing it's a silly question. You don't have to spend much time yeah. in the timeless state. I mean, you know, a, a, a moment here, you know, a moment there in life. And, and I like your idea. I do that too, where you have little reminders um, all over the place. I, I call them deminders, you know, nice. just, I love that term. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, kind of yeah. get you out of your thinking mind. Deminders. And but this, yeah, just those little things like, you know, if it's a necklace or just something, a poster or something on the wall. Um, and then you stop, you take that conscious breath and, and, you, and you get into the only thing that, of course, is real. And that's that's this moment, what's happening right now. And that's it. That's it. Yeah. Do you think you, you mentioned that, you know, the sense of self developed early and I want to ask a question about language here because language is an incredible tool, but it's also, it's got a big shadow side to it. And I think that's where people get caught up in this is the shadow side of believing kind of language is real. But my first question is, is, you know, is it two, three, four, five, there's research that kind of shows different things where you start to really, and I have three kids that are young, they're all under nine. So they've been kind of going through this and I've been, I've been watching them kind of almost a start identifying with their sense of self somewhere in that two to five years of age. I even noticed it. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this is one of my children, my middle guy, he started in the beginning when he was two and a half, three started to kind of referring to himself as like the third person point of view. It's like, yeah. Oh, Asher is over there. And I, I, I kind of, I, I translated that. It's to almost like 
he started, people started, he started developing some sort of sense of self, but he was still separate enough from it that when people were talking about Asher as his name, there was, he was seeing it with separation. So it's almost like there's a, there's a way that he was identifying the sense of self as completely separate, which is why he would say Asher is over there versus then, you know, a year or two later, he's now identified with that sense of self. So clearly we all kind of step into, except for maybe some of the really enlightened masters into this form of sense of self, it helps us kind of navigate the world, right. To kind of communicate, to orient. Um, where do you think we we start going and getting lost and identified with it is when, is when language is really started to be cemented into a, a child's life and they start seeing language as, as it's real, like you said, in the Western society. I think language, I mean, it's a complex process uh, in, you know, we can point to a lot of different variables. I think language is the main thing that contributes to it. And in the book, I even mentioned Helen Keller and yeah. her experience where, you know, she didn't really even have a sense of self until she started learning language because there's a trick there. I mean, and this is the trick of language that ironically we don't talk about very much. And that's the trick with language is that it's, it's a symbol. It's, it's, it's what we call, you know, the map of the territory and, and maps can be very useful, you know, but if you confuse the map with the territory, that's when you start to really get into trouble when you start confusing the words for the actual thing. And we have words for things that don't even exist. So we can describe things like dragons and, you know, things, imaginary creatures. And, and that's the thing. Kids are really good with that. But as adults, what happens is, is that we, we've got these imaginary uh, symbols, but we start taking them very seriously. And so I think with kids, you see the development of a self, but the wonderful thing about kids, and I have two kids, and it was such a wonderful trip to watch them, yeah. uh, you know, slowly develop the sense of self. And yeah. when they started using I, and when they started, yeah. uh, you know, and they went from like this, you know, selfless blob of just, you know, <laughs> you know, to, to all of a sudden they, you know, they were like enlightened, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's a wonderful thing about being around a newborn. I mean, you can just kind of sit there and, and, and it's like being with an enlightened master because yeah. they're just completely egoless. And they're completely in the moment, you know, the, the past means nothing. The future, they couldn't be more in the moment than anyone else. And then, and language is meaningless, yeah. you know? So they've instantly, you know, they've, we've come, we all came into the world this way, enlightened masters. And then, and then whether it's culture or, you know, something taught us to be really clever with symbols. And that's the trick of the left brain. And then we confuse these symbols with the real thing and then uh, with the self, the interesting thing about that is that we confuse the symbols of something for something that doesn't even exist. Yeah. I mean, you've heard the old Zen saying a lot of times where it's like, don't confuse the menu for the meal. The menu is the orientation of it. But, you know, when people really are thinking that the meal is the menu is when they're actually missing the direct experience of life. You, you refer to the, like a mirage and uh, like the use of, of the kind of sense of self that is developed um, within people is that it's, it's real to you, but it's not actually real. Like, you know, neuroscientist hasn't, or neuroscience really hasn't been able to point to exactly where it is. And I think there's different opinions on that, but of where it sits actually in the mind. However, you know, you, cause you can't point to it like you can like the left brain or the right brain uh, or the prefrontal cortex or something along those lines. But the sense of self is real because we continue to fuel it through our thinking or through our experiences. Kind of walk us through that train of thought for you. Well, it's an interesting thing when you, you know, doing neuroscience is a, it's a fascinating time to be a neuroscientist because they're on this quest for consciousness. They can't find consciousness in the brain. Um, they can't find the self in the brain. And although they can't find the self in the brain, one of the things I try to point out is like, look, we can't find the self, but we can find the parts of the brain that contribute to the illusion of the self. Mm. And I think that's a very important difference. It is. Um, and, and so, you know, this came out in the seventies with the work of the left brain. And so we can point to particular areas of the brain that give the, the sense of the self, the, the feeling of a self. And, Again, that, that, that sensation of self has a practical, so you write a book called No Self, No Problem. And, you know, I've had people pick the book up um, and they just sort of, of, of course I'm a self. Like, this is ridiculous. I know who I am and I have a job. And, I, and, 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 and what they're describing is, and I've almost wanted to come up with a phrase for this because that's what people want. They want words. <laughs> the left brain just craves a label for things. 
and we could call it the practical self. You know, there is a practical self. I mean, I pay my bills. I don't pay your bills. You know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, we, we have this kind of thing where it's like, you know, to get us through the day, we have a certain a social agreement of what's mine. Um, and, and so we could talk about that as having a certain type of reality. Um, the, the point of the book is to get to like the depth of that. Yeah. Okay. Like, you know, these things with social constructs and that's what the self is. It's just a social agreement that we have. Um, and so it's interesting too, when you watch kids, when they start developing the sense of self, because you were saying how your one kid was thinking in the third person, how they would describe their self. And there's, there's so many fascinating things that happen with this when we start building the sense of self. And I talk to my students about the looking glass self, which I think is a, it's a, it's a fascinating version of the self that we all go through. In other words, um, you know, we start to think about who we, who we think we are. And then we think, well, what do other people think of me? And then the looking glass self is when you realize I'm not who I think I am and I'm not who I think you are. I'm who I think you think I am. And then it really kind of clicks. Like, you know, it shows the social aspects of like, we're learning a self is like learning to drive a car. Yeah. You know, we're, we're picking up on all these like, like lessons of, of who we think we are um, really from about two. And it's, it's a process that c- continues, but again, neuroscience has done absolutely n- two things. Neuroscience has uh, fell short with, and I think there's a reason for this. And, and, and I think that they'll always come up empty with this. And that is finding the self in the brain and finding consciousness in the brain. And I think there's a really good reason that we're not going to find that in the brain. And that's when I talk about Rupert Sheldrake's work, I think consciousness, whatever it is, isn't something that is going to be describable with words and language. Yeah. And, and you kind of describe it a little bit to kind of almost point to the edges of it. It's almost like with the mirage, right. Of like, and I, I think that people can kind of almost grasp a little bit, but not grasp too hard because then you're just, you're believing into a concept and whether you believe this conversation, don't believe the conversation is almost irrelevant, right? It's almost just all of the words are just pointers kind of back to yourself of inscribed on temples, right. Of know thyself. Yeah. And, and that's that kind of mirage that you, they, that, that mind, that thinking continues to fuel it. And it's like, if you're actually in the present moment, right. And, and I, I always often get people to say, when is the last time you actually experienced real primal fear, not psychological fear, but real primal fear, like a bear is chasing you. I'm like, I promise you when a bear is chasing you, you're not in your mind thinking about what's going to happen, right? You are actually in the present moment, experiencing it, doing whatever you need to be doing to kind of protect itself. Right. Yeah, no, it's a great point. In fact, um, so this book came out, and I'm actually coming up with a, a, a kind of a, a second version of it. It's really a, a workbook for the No Self, No Problem. That's coming out early next year. Awesome. And it's just exercises. I mean, the philosophy here is like, you can't fix a thinking problem with more thinking. Mm. And so I don't want to just give another kind of philosophical book with a bunch of like academic uh, studies where people can think about all this. What I found is that most of the people found the book useful. They found the exercises useful. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, I mean, the fascinating thing about, um, for me, this happened with rock climbing. Mm. And the thing I loved about rock climbing is once you get up to a certain height, you know, the rest of the world vanishes. (laughs) The self self vanishes. And, you know, and you are really just the only thing consciousness is, you know, feeling your fingertips on the rock. That's the only place, you know, and there there are no problems in your life other than clinging to that rock at that time. And so there's you know, so many different ways we can get into that state beyond the thinking mind. And you can go really slow and that's what meditation does. And, and that's too slow a pace. So the thinking mind just becomes very bored, but the thing you pointed out, and I really like that example because it's the opposite end. Instead of going really slow, like with meditation and mindfulness, you just kind of speed it up. It's such a fast pace that the thinking mind can't keep up with it. So, you know, you're running from a bear or you're, you know, you're rock climbing or you're, you're, you know, um, you know, racing cars or, or doing sports. Sports is, is one, it's one of those things that kind of gets overlooked a lot yeah. with uh, mindfulness and meditation, but uh, sports is a, it's a great way um, to get around the thinking mind and to meditate. So, uh, and people have talked about being in the you know, flow and, you know, and, and this kind of thing. Um, but, um, but it, it, it actually, it's, it's, it's a, for, I think a lot of people getting into sports is, is, is the, one of the easier sports and music, are the two easiest ways to get around the thinking mind. And, and, and interesting thing is people are doing this already. Yeah. You know, they just don't really 
they're th- when the thinking mind turns back on, sometimes all they think about is, well, that felt really good. Yeah. yeah. You know, do you think that has a lot to do with that? We have been kind of almost caught in this thinking that in order to be on a, an enlightened path, not enlightened, but even to be on a spiritual path, it's like you need to be sitting in some cave somewhere. Or you need to be in a haiku reciting poems around a fire and just in this really white robe. And I, I think that there is one of the reasons why we have this podcast, Business Me Spirituality, is because for me, when I had my first kind of experience, if you will, when I was 16, and since then, I wrestled with this, that I didn't want my life to be passive. I actually wanted it to be very active. And so I was like, how do we, you know, when I really started going deep about 15 years or so ago, I was like, I don't really want to not be active in the world. And I, and I, but I don't want to get to the end of something and just have suffering because this path of trying to make money isn't working for me. So it did, I just, it just didn't work. And so then I kind of tried to really figure out the two together of you, life is your greatest teacher. And if it happens to be business or teaching or writing or professors or driving a school bus, it doesn't really matter what that is. It's you using life as a teacher that it's going to point out to you all the time of what puts your energy into a defensive position. And when your energy gets put into a defensive position, you realize that it's an attack on the self it, itself. So then you can kind of work to accept it and release it and start working through there. Right. Have you read anything with Adi Shanti at all? Um, if you haven't, you should, you should take a look in him. He gives a great example about rock climbing. That was, um, when he hit his moments, you, you described me of this when you were mentioning rock climbing where he's up on this rock about, I don't know, two or 300 feet up, just basically essentially with one, one bolt in. And he hit this point where for about five minutes, he couldn't figure out where to go. Like he's stuck. Right. And he's trying to figure out with his mind of where to go. And he said he had about 15 seconds left. His hands were shaking and do this stuff. And he pretty much knew that he was going to die. Right. And he said in that 15 seconds, his mind shut off and he just made the move. And he mm-hmm. said it was this kind of first experience. He's like, it just shut off because I was so worried about this. And it was like, it was almost, he describes it as almost if something overtook his mind and just acted because it was like, it's not the time. Get out of the way. It's almost like you, you could mention like the right brain kind of moved it out and said, here's the move, right? Stop getting out of your mind. Um, so you should check out his work. It's, it's pretty interesting story when he, when he talks about that. Um, but a samskara is referred to, it's an ancient Sanskrit term for 2000 years. And they talk about it's a stored energy power pattern from either pushing an experience away or clinging to experience. So it's like you have a wonderful dinner and you kind of hold on to it and you kind of store it because you just don't want it to go because you, you want to savor it so much. Or on the other side is like kind of the Buddhist refer to as the kind of pushing it away. It's like a negative experience. You're kind of fighting reality, but either one of those, you didn't allow it to actually pass through you, right? You've blocked the energy somehow from actually passing through you. And so they refer to it as a samskara, which is formed of like a circle, which can be also known as the most powerful symbol in the world, because it's something where energy can keep going around and around, but stay still. And so it's like, it's like, if you have a, if you have baby, you're an enlightened baby, as you mentioned earlier, as you start having these, these experiences that you don't like, the self really doesn't like, or that it does like, then you start building all these boulders in this, this pristine stream that starts blocking the water from flowing. And that's why when people say my heart fell out or dropped, your heart didn't go anywhere physically. What dropped out from that conversation or that event was your energy got cut off because it wasn't something the way you, you enjoyed it. And they were refer to it as some scaras, which is these stored energy patterns, which is why every time when you're walking through life, everything's fine. All of a sudden the mind can go boo and somebody is in the worst mood ever, right? Instantaneously. You just kind of get put back. It's when that energy shifts to that defensive position, like anger, jealousy, frustration, not worthy enough. It can shift for different for anybody. But when it shifts in that position, in that moment, you have that opportunity to let go of the rope, right? Let go of it. Trying, It's like a magnetic pull, like pu- trying to pull you out of its seat of self, right? Pull you out of that. And as it pulls you, you literally get out of, you, you no longer are awakened, right? And that's why I said, people are talking about, you need to awaken now or mindfulness brings you to that state. So, um, the kind of way I was referring to it as the, some scars or these circle patterns in there. And as life kind of goes through you, you get hit and then you accept it and you kind of release it the same way you do it through meditation. But we don't even need to be meditating in a cave for 15 hours because you just go through life and life's going to show you what bothers you. Right. And then in that moment, you can kind of let go. Mm, Yeah. It's a great um, question. And I, I get this a lot. People will say, well, how do I let go? And the typical response I usually say is, well, if you're in this mindset of the ego and the thinking mind, you can't let go. The thinking mind doesn't let go. And so what you, so you sort of uh, uh, come to some um, surrender with that. 
Yes. You know, so the thinking mind sort of gives up. And then you see when the thinking mind, and it, so that kind of happened with me uh, when I was extremely neurotic and I kept trying harder and harder to fix my neurosis. And I figured out that it was my trying to fix it. That was my neurosis. And I just gave up. Mm. I just, I got out. I just said, you know, I don't care anymore. You know, kill me now. I don't care. Yeah. And the moment I did that, all of a sudden, everything became incredibly peaceful. Wow. And that blew me away. I was kind of like, what did the, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's a great story of, you know, how people, you know, um, um, and you could put it another way. You could say, because in our culture, and I talk a little bit about the right brain and intuition. And in our culture, we simply have, we train the thinking mind from an early age. I mean, we, we need to look at what our educational system is. It's all about the thinking mind. And that's great in, in a lot of practical ways. But the problem is we have virtually no training in intuition. So our intuitions are not very skilled. And so we're not really sure when the thinking mind is jumping to some conclusion versus a genuine intuition. The genuine intuitions are what we want to learn to listen to. And that's the stuff that will guide us. That's the stuff that really um, connects us with our purpose and, our, and what we really should be doing here. But the problem is, is the thinking mind keeps getting in the way and the thinking mind says, oh, I can't trust, you know. And, um, but then the research is very interesting on this because we're starting to find research that shows us how we know far before our thinking mind knows. Yeah. And so I give a couple of, uh, you know, studies in the, in the, in the book that kind of, that will show that, you know, if you just look at your nervous system, your nervous system will start sweating and knows this is a bad decision, but the thinking mind is kind of just, if I just try hard enough, if I put enough effort, if I don't quit, we have this philosophy, like don't quit. Well, sometimes quitting is actually, something we should do. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the universe is hitting us over the head saying, you're going down a really bad path and I don't know what else I can do to get you, you know, and, and if we can just surrender and, 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 and get the thinking mind to just, um, just slow, you know, that's what these practices do. They yeah. just slow it down just sometimes just enough where the right brain can kind of come in and, 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 and let us and guide us with a, a, an intuition that's far more wise than the thinking mind can ever be. And that's the thing about the thinking mind. It's so convinced. Like we have intelligence tests. We have so many ways to kind of judge ourselves by our thinking mind. And, and we've got so many, there's so many brilliant people out there and, and studying consciousness. And, and the problem is, at least from my perspective, is they're so brilliant that, you know, that their brilliance is kind of getting in the way. Yeah. They're such, you know, they're so smart that thinking mind can continuously come up with some explanation um, so again, is there, how do we cultivate intuition? How do we take that leap of faith and, and hope the bridge appears, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I think this is one of the things that life lessons are, are, are really important when, when all it takes is when, when a person trusts their God and they, they go with their intuition and then the universe rewards and says, look, you are on the right path. Mm -hmm. And that can be an, a life changing experience. You know, that's, and we're simply not taught that in school at all. We're in fact, we're taught the exact opposite. We're taught that intuitions are um, foolish and, and superstitious and that, um, uh, and you know, again, the, the idea that even when I talk about consciousness being outside of the brain or that the brain is not the sole source of consciousness, that alone, um, there's plenty of neuroscientists that would shut me down right at that statement right there. Yeah. So what would you say to them if they shut you down? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a debate that I, it's, I don't think it's going to be one that's going to be resolved. Like I, I, one of the phrases I, I, I've been pushing lately is you can't solve a thinking problem with more thinking. Yeah. And so there's no way, there's no argument I'm going to give that's going to convince someone of yes. this. Um, I once had a very long debate for years with a colleague of mine about what we call contentless consciousness. That's consciousness without any content. And if you look up any standard psychological dictionary, they'll say, well, the, the fundamental element of consciousness is to be conscious of something. And the fascinating thing with long-term meditators is they, that they will have experiences of consciousness aware of only consciousness. Mm. And so there is no subject object. It's only consciousness aware of itself. Yeah. But the trick with that is, like we were talking about earlier, like if I know what an orange tastes like, and you don't, yeah. there's just yeah. no way, yeah. <laughs> there's no word, there's no yes. argument I can give you yes. 
for you to understand what I'm where I'm going with that until you taste it yourself. Yeah. You can't you can't make somebody you know, can't quench somebody's thirst with words, right? They have to actually yeah. drink it to be able to do it. You know, it, it, when, the, when the, when, if you break your arm, there's your body sends signals of how to fix it. Like obviously it's throbbing. So, you know, your arm's broken. So you go fix it. Right. And I love how you were referring to this is like the astro body or energy field when it's not healthy and there's something wrong. It's, it's like, it's like you said, it's trying to hit you over the head. It just doesn't communicate in the way that we look for communication, i.e. the language aspect of it. It communicates differently. And if we're not paying attention to that, which is what mindfulness consciousness will do. It, it'll just get louder and louder and louder until finally something happens. And it's like, geez, you're just going to wake up, right? Just kind of listen to that astro body. So I think part of the mindfulness kind of movement, if you will, helps people realize that there's a whole other way of guiding. Because when I was reading your book and um, I was thinking about the left side of the brain, whenever I saw that kind of that the self start talking, I actually recognized it in, in the front left side of my head. And I don't, I had never really made that connection before. Um, it's like when that voice comes in of from the ego was in the left side of my head actually came in that way. But when you have that kind of conscious contact with life itself or that visceral feel, that body feel of those aha moments, it comes much deeper and from behind it's a, it takes over your body and it's a completely different, um, it comes in differently, it comes from behind versus that left side. So as people kind of listening to that, it's just, for me, it just kind of helped out a lot of, oh, that's that mind just kind of just talking. There it is. It just does its thing. It just talks, right? Versus mm -hmm. that kind of movement in life that's trying to get Chris to go write another book or Chris to go out there and create a workshop and, and workbook so people can actually do those things. It's a different feeling. It's that visceral, it's a whole body experience. And that's when you kind of know that it's, it's you're moving with life versus moving with your mind because people go, well, how do I know the difference? Yeah. And I think you, you can kind of, you can feel that you just know the difference. You're not going to know it in language, but you're going to know it from, um, from the direct experience that you're going to have with it. Yeah. And think about the mess that we're in, in terms of our bodies right now. Yeah. I mean, if you go through all the like, uh, modern diets and there's people who will say, well, just eat meat. No, just eat, yeah. you know, if, if, if you can, all, if you go through all the stuff, eventually find out you can't eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> and and this is, again, one of the things that we corner ourselves into because we've, we've been overthinking. I mean, your body knows exactly what it needs. Your body knows exactly what it needs at any particular time. We've disconnected that awareness so much that we would rather trust our thinking mind and say, well, I read this book by this authority, and this person says this is what I should be eating over what our body is telling us. Here's what you need right now. Oh, you need to sleep this, this many hours. You need this. Or, you know, and it's telling us that all the time. It's like the signal is there, if, but we just have to be open to it. I love how you said that, you know, I was a hundred pounds overweight for up to about 16 years of my life. And I ended up losing a hundred pounds in a year. And I have always, even up until for probably the next 15 or 20, I was when I was 16 up, up till I was probably mid thirties. I still had this, I would use will willpower essentially to keep kind of diet under control. But over the last, I don't know, four or five years, it's become a, you know, I always kind of refer to it as if you pick a food that you just don't like, like you're not going to go eat it. You just don't like it. And that's ultimately what I found happening is the more and more you became in rhythm with nature itself, it actually is telling you what to do. It's like the Shakti, the energy is flowing through you. Well, it doesn't want you to touch it. It doesn't want you to yeah. get in the way of it. It just wants you, just wants you to experience it for what it is. But when we get in the way, that's when we start messing things up and you'll know exactly what to eat, when to get up and when not to. It's just, we, we've been covering that up for so much that it doesn't, it doesn't come out and we can't pay attention to it. Or if it's there, we just don't give it any credit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you see it with so many, um, and whether it's drinking, um, smoking, and it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating that when the thinking mind will be completely convinced, like I need that cigarette, I need that drink. I need this, I need this extra, you know, you need to go to the buffet for a third time. And, and the thinking mind just has you convinced. And this is one of the things I also focus on in my new book, that thinking mind is a very old program. Yeah. And, and sometimes people think, well, we just kind of popped up like out of nowhere, but actually the, the, when we ask the question of who we are, this is a very interesting question to go back and say, well, how long have we been on the planet? And you say, well, you know, human beings have been on the planet for about two and a half million years. Well, okay. How long have homo sapiens been on the planet? And then maybe a hundred, maybe two, about two or 300,000 years. Yeah. But the weird thing is that we were on the planet with all these other different versions of humans. You know, I mean, homo, homo erectus was around for 2 million years. 
And then we show up homo sapiens and like, you know, like Thanos, we like, we snapped and we just, there are no more versions of humans. Yeah. You know, we're, the, we're the last living humans. And so that's a question that I think, uh, so when we say, well, where'd the thinking mind come from? We have to realize, well, we don't have to, but I think it's a good thing to realize its origins. The thinking mind is about 40 to 70,000 years old. It's, it's a clever puzzle. So it's good at puzzle solving. It's good at, categorization it's good at survival it is like you know very good at playing this game of survival mm-hmm. um but the problem is so that's how you know we survive we have thought all of our competitors but now here we are you know seventy thousand years later the world has changed in ways that are um, it's you know impossible to describe the changes yeah. we live in a completely we may as well be on a different planet and here but we're stuck with this very old mind program it's an outdated program and it's and it and, and, and it's trying to th- solve every problem by thinking and, and using strategy and doing this us versus them, you know? And, and it's interesting too, that, you know, it's this us versus them program that, that saved us. That's why homo sapiens survived, but now it has nowhere to go except to turn on us. And so what we've done is we've created, you know, all these subdivisions and all, and, and all and this uh, uh, conflict and all the conflict is from this, this out, imagine if you didn't update your computer yeah. like every year, you know, and here's a 70,000 year old program. And so that, that let that interpretive left brain, what I do in the set in the next book is I talk more about where it came from, you know, and, and, and the more we understand where it came from, the more you can get that experience. Like you were describing, you're like, you, you, you experience it as kind of a program running in your skull, yeah. you know, and that's, and that's all it is. So you don't take it very seriously. I love how you, you described that. So where do you, do you think we're in a spot in evolution now where the, all the, 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 the kind of psychological suffering that's occurring because at this, you know, even a hundred years ago, people didn't really have, I mean, the, you know, people were still farming. I think it's like 85% of people were still farming, doing their things, kind of that stuff. Now that we have an abundance of basically everything for the majority of us listening to this, right. It's, we're not worried about the need, you know, it's, we're not necessarily worried about where we're going for shelter, where we're going for food. So we have all those things covered and now we've just got lost in our minds because there's no longer, you're not using that mind to go hunt and gather anymore. Like it was really designed for to create fire and kind of live. Now it kind of just sits there and it's like, I don't really, what am I supposed to do? It's like almost the mind is just sitting there going, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to talk and it just try and talks. And then it creates little neural pathways once it finds you like something. And then it's like, well, if you're in a bad mood, I know I can tell you what to do. It's like, I almost describe it as like, it's like your, it's like, it thinks it's your best friend and it's got you in a headlock and you're going, Oh, you, you think the mind's your best friend. It's got you in a headlock and it's squeezing you so hard. And you finally go and in the, in the, in the mind go or the self goes, you want me to show you how good of a friend I am? And it starts to le- let up a little bit and you go like, Oh, thank you so much. You're an amazing friend it's, yeah. it was the reason why you were suffering in the first place right and yeah. so do you think we're at a at a phase now in kind of evolution where we're all starting to kind of go hold on pause and start to get that separation and realize that it's just a personal computer inside your head that you can use so you don't have to carry around a bunch of notebooks and understanding people's names <laughs> well i think when we look at people like you know the impact that people like emperor uh, eckhart tolle had on society yeah. Yeah. when you talk about uh, someone like him having this experience and it reaching eight 10, 15, 20 million people. Um, it, it, it really does appear that we're recognizing the program is outdated, which is really, you know, that's the problem. Um, and, you know, to recognize the problem is, well, how do you fix it? Well, you don't have to fix it. You just need to recognize what, what where, where it's coming from. And you put it really well when you said, okay, well, we, this, here's this mind program and, and it's really concerned with survival, but most of us, probably most of us listening to this, we're not, you know, I'm not worried about survival. I, I mean, even if I lost my job, I'd have, you know, I, I'm, I can survive. I've got food, I've got shelter. Now, what does the mind do? Well, the mind is geared to find problems. And there's a fascinating study where they told people, they said, just, just hit a key every time you see a blue dot. It sounds like a simple task, you know, and there's all other colored dots that would come up. And then the researchers did something clever. They stopped showing blue dots. What, and so you think, okay, well, if you stop showing blue dots, I'll just stop pressing the button. But that's not what subjects did. They redefined what a blue dot was. Mm. So now if it was a purple dot or even something that was, then they're pressing the button for purple. And they did this in a couple different ways. And what it shows us is, is that the mind left without a, 
without any problem to solve, like, okay, I don't have to get food. I don't have to get shell. It's going to invent problems. It's going to redefine. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like, well, you know, the temperature is 72. I, you know, it's got to be perfectly, you know, <laughs> and other, you know, so, and this chair, you know, isn't perfectly comfortable. And, and so the mind, and we, and, but, but, the, it's just the recognition of that. So like sometimes when I sit in this chair and I'll be like, it's kind of squeaky. It's kind of, and then I just think, look, that's just my mind. Yeah. This chair is fine. I don't need another chair. Not, yeah. <laughs> my mind is just telling me I need another chair. My mind is just telling me I need another, you know, blank, whatever, fill it in with whatever, whatever you're, you know, going to fill it in with. And, and we're at a time now, I think, you know, we, we've gone to such excess with material goods that it's, it's actually kind of a blessing. Yes. We, we've shown that like, just crazy excess. It, 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 it you're just going to want more. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think I put the quote in there um, by Rockefeller when someone asked him like, how much money will make you happy? And he, his response, I think reflects the mind thinking perfectly. He said, just a little bit more than I have. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the eighties were, were really big into accumulation of 17 houses, diamond rings, things. And then people started waking up and realized like that actually just caused more suffering. The more, and I always explain the only, the only joy that you're going to have from getting, you know, lasting joy that you're going to have from material things is the joy that's already inside you. Right. I mean, and then when you have money and you have things, it's wonderful. Right. But the thing is you, you, I usually wear a sweatshirt that says, it says need nothing, enjoy everything. Cause I really follow that first line of the great Zen patriarch where it says the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Right. And I think that summarizes it all. And people go, well, I can't let go of my preferences. And it's like, you're still thinking too much about it. It doesn't like you pick a shirt out and there's, there's no energy behind your preferences, meaning that you can still be laser focused on writing a book on your job on getting these things. You're just letting go of the personal need to derive something externally to substitute that for an internal feeling because you're not feeling whole and complete. You're only feeling that there's something missing because the mind is telling you that there's something missing instead of kind of removing that to the side and actually accepting the fact that you are already awake, right? The Buddha, right? You're an awakened one. You just don't know it. And so I think people are recognizing at least in the business community too. I'm really fascinated to see how this is, you know, as this, 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 even this conversation, we get really deep in our, in our podcast and there's a lot of business leaders from across the, the world going, thank you for bringing this conversation because they thought they were on an Island. They thought they were like, I keep getting, I keep making more money or keep getting more recognition and I feel worse. I'm like, yeah, because that linear progression will never bring you the joy or the enthusiasm. It brings fleeting moments of happiness because the mind gets what it wants. And when it gets what it wants, it opens your energy up and you feel great for about an hour. <laughs> yeah. right? And it's interesting too, because there's a, again, there's so many paradoxes when we get to the right brain awareness and particularly when you talk about making money and the, the fascinating thing about making money is this irony that where and I know people who have kind of transcended that kind of like they've made so much money that it's even obvious to them anymore yes. is kind of useless. Yes. And they all even tell me, they're like, you know, I'm not even trying to make money now. You know, like, and they just keep making money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a strange signal. It's almost like when you send that signal, I don't know, like, you know, this kind of idea of manifesting like, like whatever you send out is what you get. And, and there does seem to be a certain sense where the universe responds to like, like if I keep saying like, I need this, I need this. And it, it sends us like, I don't have it. And if I don't have it, then I'm not going to get it. And once we send this kind of like, look, I've got every, like, so sometimes I'll wake up and I'll just send this energy out. Like I've got everything I need. Yeah. I'm absolutely content with. And, but when I send that message out, it's almost like the universe gives me more. It's like, you know, here's more stuff. Yeah. And, and, and I think that there's a sense where um, if, if you can get the right attitude with, with stuff and, and, and play with it and, and almost be like a kid yes. and enjoy it, yes. um, you can really have the best of both worlds, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll read some, you know, Advaita Vedanta and then I'll go, you know, look at look for a sports car, you know, (laughs) and I have no problem with that. To me, it's like, you know, if if I, uh, you know, uh, enjoy driving really fast in a really nice high performance car to me, it's like, it's, it's, but if I, it's just like the mind, if you get attached to the mind, it's going to cause suffering. If I get attached to the car, it's going to cause, cause me suffering. If I just have fun with it and play with it, then it's going to be a great, source of energy. That is the finest line right there. And thank you for saying that. That's the fine line for people though, is that it's, 
it's there's nothing wrong with this. You don't have to renounce it because renouncing something is the same way of going after it, right? You're still putting energy towards renouncing it. And so it's not that. It's just you have it, but there's no energy attached to it. I you know, I heard Eckhart Tolle say the other day, he said, you know, I, I go in and drink Starbucks coffee every day. And every time I walk in there, somebody walks up to me and says, you shouldn't be drinking coffee. And he, and he's like, well, why? Like I enjoy coffee. Right. And he goes, I drink glasses of wine. Right. I don't, you know, I drink consciously. I drink coffee consciously. Uh, I'm there, but it's like, there's like this concept that says, well, I can't have anything. I can't have a house or a car or a boat or any of those things. If I'm trying to be on this spiritual path and that's not it, it's actually letting, it's like needing nothing, but just enjoying everything that happens to you. And you're so spot on when you say the minute you let go of needing anything, you actually start having an abundance of the things that actually show up because you're no longer attached to it. Then it just come in. They're just like, Hey, I could have them or I could give them away. You may not want anything negative to happen to you, but if it does or challenges arise, you just accept them for where they are instead of fighting reality. Like I needing this, like some people are, and you can see the difference when people have things and they need them. You can see that in people when people have some things and are just like they're there, like you have the conversation with them. You can clearly tell that there's no energy attached to it. Right. Well, Tim Cass's work was really interesting. He did this all across the globe. And what he found is that materialistic values were associated with unhappiness. It didn't matter. You could be a billionaire, but if you were not, if your value system wasn't geared around material things, you could still be very happy Yeah. and you could be broke. But if you're, value system was around believing that things will make you happy, you end up unhappy. Mm. And so it's, it's really our orientation towards the things that determine, you know, you could have, you know, there's no limits. You could have as much money it, or be totally broke there. It's, it's a, it's orthogonal to whether you're going to be happy. It's your attitude towards the things. If you believe this thing will make me happy, it's not. Yeah. And if you get into it and you say, well, Hey, this thing's going to be kind of fun and I can lose it at any time, but Hey, it's here now. I'm going to have some fun with it. Then it seems like it's, it, it kind of immunizes you and, you and you can actually have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. It's like the search for happiness thwarts happiness, right? The, the search oh. for whatever that is, whatever X is thwarts, whatever X is correct. I think that is probably one of the biggest, cause we're, you were talking about like, are we on a, sh on a edge of a shift right now? And I think, that so that was you know the work of Viktor Frankl was a while ago, but people are really picking up that my absolute pursuit of happiness is one of the things getting in the way of my happiness. And actually, the, my first book was a self-published book, and it was um, really, I mean, that's, that was the central idea behind it was that if we, because um, then I got that from my insight from my neurosis, yeah. I kept thinking like, I ha it's an absolute mission that I need to get rid of this. This is suffering and I, I shouldn't be suffering right now. And the more I thought I shouldn't be suffering, the more I suffered. If I had simply been accepting and open and, and, and surrendered to it and said, okay, you know, it's here, yeah. you know, bad days happen, yeah. you know, I mean, and, and it's funny with my students, you know, we, we have this push, like we want all gang with no yin and like, Oh, have a nice day. And, and you can hear this like 20 times a day. People have a nice day. I'm like, just have a day. <laughs> just have a day. It is, it's going to be what it's going to be. And you have no control yeah. over that. Yeah. And you're, you know, bad days. You can't, you know, someone else, so if I get in a bad mood or I have a bad day, I'm like, okay, here it is. Here it's it is. Bad mood. I love well, it. Gonna, you know, and it happens. And, 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 and the interesting thing is that when you, when you're accepting and you let it happen, it just like, it's just like so many emotions, like you were talking about how we can channel up or, and, and block these emotional channels. And I think that's what happens. We're so bent on having a nice day every day that anytime a bad mood comes along, we kind of try to shut it off. We try to, you know, uh, compartmentalize. We want to push it down. And the problem is, is if you're in a bad mood and you accept it and you express it, it's over so fast. <laughs> um, you know, comes and goes like a wave. Well, because it can't be sustained because you're not putting energy on it, right? An ignored guest quickly leaves, right? I mean, you yeah. said that, right? And, and I think that's something that ignored guests quickly leave, and you can use that for any emotion, right? It's almost like we have little hands in there. It's like all of a sudden when, when it's like we want to push it down, we don't want it to come up. And so it's like we're, we're blocking everything. So it comes out a lower level chakra, right? Instead of yoga and its defined terms is almost like a, a water bottle where you want the energy to keep rising up and rising up to come out through you. Just like when people get, like if the market 
market goes up and you made a million dollars and that was your value system and you just feel this rush of energy, what it was is you didn't block the energy. It's always there. Yeah. The energy is never not there, right? It's instantaneous. You get a good phone call. It's not like the phone call injected a needle in you and was like, all of a sudden you got this energy, you drink a caffeine thing. It's there sitting there. It's just coming out of different chakras. And so that's, we just, it's like we have hands blocking it. So it can't come up. But when we open ourselves up, like the sky and sun's always there and the clouds go away, all of a sudden the sun's out. And it's the same thing here, but then we get these rushes of energy that kind of open us up. But then the left brain, if you will, kind of jumps in and goes, I know what to do to open you up. And you go, oh, you do? Thank you so much. And then you just get caught on that whole thing. You need to go do this, get a partner, have another kid, do that, or go get a car. And, And you're attaching yourself to listening to that. Like, it's almost like you should just ask Siri how to have a life and go follow that. You probably have a better chance. Yeah. And the thinking mind, uh, it's like those clouds. It's always sunny, yeah. you know, and the thinking mind is like those clouds. And it gives us this feeling like, Oh, it's a really, uh, but you know, beyond the thinking mind, it's, it's always sunny. It's always fun. It's always perfect as it should be. It's, and if you, you know, yeah, that's, that's, and it comes with acceptance and it comes with, um, stepping out of the way of thinking mind. And it's, there's been such a, um, so many new books coming out right now, you know, focusing on the joy, the, um, the euphoria, the energy that we get when we, uh, recognize the thinking mind for when we stop identifying with the thinking mind. And when you stop identifying with the thinking mind, it's like those clouds clear and you realize that, you know, you've always been a Buddha. It's always sunny out. Everything's always okay. And, and, and we, and we recognize that the, what we call the negative emotions, that those are okay too. Yes. You know, and then it's the left brain judgment that has to say, well, you know, we only want the good. Yes. And that does, it's, you know, so in some ways we're at a really positive point in our history. But on the other hand, you do see this kind of push for like all the positives still. And so you see this kind of like people, like we want to, we want people to be perfect. And so, um, you know, there's this kind of thing going on culturally where, you know, we're, we're taking our shadow side and we're burying it down even kind of deeper and which is, you know, well, it's a lesson we'll figure out eventually. I love how you said that. It's so true though, isn't it? It's like people, like if you're not acting, even going back to Jesus Christ, I mean, he walked into churches and kicked tables over, right? <laughs> I mean, you are a being having a human experience, right? I mean, you, humans are not perfect and they're going to make mistakes. And part of that, the, we've just labeled them good emotions, bad emotions. They're just all emotions. They're not good or bad. So therefore you should be able to experience all of them. I mean, that's why you're here as the experiencer, the witness of life to experience all of the, the full array of emotions or the full array of your heart. From, I mean, think about how, how um, bland life would be if your heart, your heart wasn't there. Heart gives life texture, right? It gives like this, this, if somebody dies around you, it's like this low note and you can feel it like a piano. And then when something's going really well and you have this super high note, if you didn't have that ability to experience that life wouldn't have the same kind of rhythmic way to it. And so I think we need to stop kind of pushing those down and just allowing them all to kind of be who we are, except for we don't attach ourselves to them. We just get to experience itself, experiencing itself. Right. Yeah. And so at the end of the book, that's one of the reasons I kind of point to a very old story from Hinduism with this idea, like, what would God do? You know, I mean, so God has all powerful, all knowing and, and things might get kind of boring. And so God might kind of have a create an adventure by forgetting who God is. And the adventure is us right now doing exactly what we're doing, forgetting who we really are. And getting into this wild adventure of being a spiritual being in a human existence, and the human existence is filled with good days and bad days and challenges and dreadful news, and you know, and, and it's it is a wild adventure. And we're actually giving. It's kind of like I like to think of it as that's kind of a gift we give to God, and you know, God wouldn't you know the kind of what do we want to call cosmic consciousness, you know, whatever phrase you want to use for what's in essence impossible to capture perfectly with words. But whatever it is, it, it, it could that have bad days? Could that, you know, you know, could it have a, a surprise party? Could it could it laugh at a joke? You know, and by getting lost in this idea of who we think we are and having this kind of human existence, it 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 gives a range of experiences that are, you know, kind of a wild adventure, I think. 
Yeah, I love it. And to kind of wrap up today, Chris, and thank you so much for for being on the show. I, I really appreciate this conversation. You kind of uh, wrap your book up with kind of three different options, if you will, for people yeah. to kind of bring this into their life. Um, so you want to kind of wrap us up with those kind of three options if people are listening to this right now and saying, well, where do I go from here? Yeah, and you know, so you can think of it as um, taking everything dreadfully seriously, you know, and, and you can, you know, be this person who gets furious because someone stole your parking place or, uh, you know, mad because you had to wait in line. Um, and you can take the other path and you can kind of, you know, meditate for 10 hours a day and, uh, you know, <laughs> um, do yoga and just, you know, whatever you, you know, yeah. just you get on the hilltop and, you know, and be alone. Um, or the, the thing I suggest is kind of having one foot in both worlds, you know, and, um, and, uh, and have those experiences where you realize that, you know, uh, the self, this ego, it's an illusion, but it's, a, but it's, you know, why is it here? You know, what story is it telling? What adventure is it to have it? And so, you know, you, you, even though I called the book, no self, no problem, it makes it sound like, well, let's just, you know, live a world without a self, but really the message is to, appreciate and honor both worlds mm -hmm. and to, to appreciate this kind of, yeah, we're connected to everything. Yes. There's a greater awareness. Yes. There's a greater consciousness. Yes. Everything is perfect as it is, but I'm also here as whatever my true nature is. I'm also here as a human being. Mm -hmm. I'm here giving the universe sort of an individual adventure. And in a way it's kind of my responsibility to, to, to really have some fun with that and to, to enjoy it. And, and, and if I enjoy it, I don't mean just enjoy all the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, get into it. And, and like, if you're having a bad day, get into your bad day. If you're having a good day, you know, enjoy that. Um, see it as, uh, you know, we go to sad movies, we go to see movies of adventure and, but, and you don't need to go to the movies, your life right now, as you're living it, it's your adventure. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's kind of reminds me of the ancient, you know, kind of philosophy where the actual cross represents the horizontal line and the vertical line. The vertical line represents the kind of being rooted in being, but the horizontal line represents kind of the form world, if you will. And the intersection between the two is this perfect interplay between human beings, you know, the human world and the being world of just like you said, there's like playing and also respecting the form world, but really knowing who you are at the end. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's our trip. And again, the interesting thing is you can't lose. So if you totally get lost in, and, and you do take it too seriously, you know, well, you've still given a really interesting adventure for consciousness. And, if, you know, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. you know it's, I like to think like you can't escape being who you really are. You can only think that you are not who you are. Yeah. I love that. Well, Chris, where can everybody find you? So I do have a webpage, chrisneebauerphd.com, I believe. And um, most of the stuff that I do, though, I, I have a YouTube channel, and I think that's also just chrisneebauerphd. Um, and I have a lot of fun on my YouTube channel. So that's probably the thing I interact. I'm at a very interesting time right now where I still have less than 1,000 subscribers, so I can interact really well with people. And, and we have a lot of interesting discussions, and it's a, it's a great outlet. Um, and Twitter and I mean, I don't do that too much, but I still post things there and, um, and Facebook, I have a, I think it's no self, no problem. And I, I'm sort of active with that too. Um, but you know, I'm still, I, I've got my emails. You can, people can find it. They, uh, uh, if they just go to the webpage and, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting time because people read the book and I get to, you know, talk to it, you know, it's really interesting to, 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 uh, you know, connect with people and, 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 and get to talk about, you know, that message that, um, you know, when I wrote the book, I felt like, you know, I wasn't really right. I'm like a secretary. I'm just taking notes, you know, and this yeah. stuff just kind of, you know, you're a vehicle for something much more yeah. than, uh, their ego can ever appreciate. Um, but it's been one, you know, such a great trip to talk to people and be on these podcasts and just chat about this stuff. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for all the work that you're doing. You certainly helped, you know, orient my life and, and I know you will other people. So I know it's not necessarily easy all the time, but I know you're enjoying all every day and every moment of it. So thanks so much for being on, Chris. Thanks. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with Chris and I today. If you want to get his book, No Self, No Problem, it's certainly on Amazon, or you can check out the show notes, and we'll have all that linked into it today. If you did like this, share it with somebody. We'd love to get this message out. Uh, Also, share Chris's book as well, too. Uh, And again, if you haven't left a review, please make sure you do. 